Welcome to Bridges 2030 Visions, a series in which we ask experts and thought leaders from around the globe, how do we build a more sustainable and inclusive world in the current decade and beyond? I'm James Taylor, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about innovation, or more specifically, how we get better at social innovation with Ravi Gurumurthy, who is the CEO of Nesta, the UK's social innovation agency. There is a process whereby you are understanding a problem, you're seeding new ideas, you're filtering out the good and the bad, and then you're scaling them. So unless we get the, the highly regulated, public service-driven social economy right, we won't actually get the whole economy right. The good thing about climate change is because it's got a deadline, because we have to get to net zero by 2050, it's encouraged the degree of long-term planning that you don't see in most other policy areas. When people think about innovation, the focus is often on whizzy new technologies like AI, as we talked about in the last episode. But innovation is much broader than that. It's also about better products, better services, better ways of doing things that we're doing already. And unfortunately, historically, the UK in particular has not had a great track record at this. Ravi unpicks some of the reasons for this and talks about some possible solutions. He's also got some interesting things to say about what good innovation should look like and how government can support that through policy and regulation. Fundamentally, as an economy, the only way we can get out of the, the difficulty we're in is if we find ways of becoming more productive, and that's through innovation of in products and services and delivery models. I think it matters because if we want to raise the productivity of the economy, or if we want to tackle big intractable issues um, like obesity, the only way we're going to do that is through improving or generating new solutions, testing them rigorously, and then really trying to deploy them at scale, which I think is the essence of innovation. Where I tend to focus is on the, um, if you like, the social innovation side. So innovation for social good. Now, you might think that's a sort of marginal issue. But when you think about the economy and you think about education or healthcare or social care um, or waste, um, all of these are huge sectors and a large part of our overall economy. So unless we get the, the highly regulated, public service driven social economy right, we won't actually get the whole economy right. Well, I think the interesting thing is everybody is constantly improvising and innovating. So you go into any classroom or any um, follow any social worker around, they are having to find workarounds to difficult issues. I think what we're not that good at is a scouring and understanding what are they doing and why are they why are they working. So we're not great at capturing that innovation. Nor do we have very many systematic, deliberate processes to um, design and test particularly solutions to big social problems and scale them. Uh, and that's partly because we've you know, hugely underinvested in them, but also we haven't really had a culture of thinking about how you tinker and innovate. And it's, it's just a fundamentally interdependent process where it requires lots of different actors to do things, whole systems need to shift, and that's sometimes difficult to orchestrate, particularly if you're a government. Perhaps we could dig a little deeper into some of the projects Nesta's got going on at the moment. Um, let's start with lower carbon homes. I think the, the, the shift towards net zero homes is a good example of the challenge of innovation. Let's take the heat pump. The heat pump is a very efficient technology. For every one unit of electricity you put in, it gives you three or four units of um, energy back. But it is challenging to get those um, technologies deployed at scale for a number of reasons. One, the cost. And the cost is not just about the inherent cost of the technology or installing it. 
it's dependent on the regulations that exist that put it put prices up put prices of electricity up. So at the moment, electricity has all the, the levies and taxes, gas doesn't. And that's one of the reasons why electricity is more expensive than gas. So there is a real market failure there because of the structure of subsidies in the country. There's also a challenge, though, in terms of um, the, the number of installers. We've had a series of um, stop-start subsidy schemes to get heat pumps deployed and because in an early phase of any transition, it's inevitably involves a lot of government involvement, that creates risk and uncertainty, which then means that suppliers think, well, I'm not, I'm going to hedge my bets. I may not get trained up. So in order to really accelerate the, the, the shift, it requires a lot of policy certainty, um, stability, um, and active measures to actually help the installer market get into gear. What, what is Nesta specifically doing to try and make some of this stuff happen? So we, we're doing a, a number of things. One is just actually trying to look at what is the cost of installing a heat pump and how can you reduce it? So we've analysed all the data from installations that have occurred to find out where can we possibly shorten or shorten the time it takes to, to get a heat pump installed and where can we find cost savings? For instance, one thing we're doing is um, looking at a heat cost estimation tool for consumers. Uh, at the moment, it can actually take quite a bit of time to get a personalised quote that puts people off. It also means that they're not very well um, able; they're very able to actually argue with the quote that they're getting. So another thing we're doing is building a business that is specifically designed to shorten the time and cost of doing the survey that require that, that you need to do to get a heat pump installed. The kind of activities that Nesta does is a combination of research experiments and actual trials on the ground, but then also building businesses and new ventures. Yeah, so that's a good example of the complexity of trying to make all this stuff happen. Um, let's look at one of the other areas that you're working on at the moment, uh, obesity. We've massively increased um, the obesity of the British population and the cost to the UK economy is massive. One estimate by Frontier Econ Economics puts the cost of obesity at about £54 billion. Pounds. Which I think is about 3% of GDP. So we've got a huge problem that is caused um, by the food environment that we live in. The fact that all our um, retailers and restaurants and others are constantly pushing us to eat the wrong kind of food. Now, we think the way to solve that isn't through lots of individual dieting programs. We've tried that for decades. And the truth is that relying on individual willpower to shift food intake is not going to work. What we need to do is try and reformulate foods um, to make them less calorific um, and shift the food environment so it's easy to actually live a healthier life. One of the successful examples of it is the sugar tax, where um, George Osborne introduced this, and it was very carefully in, in, uh, carefully calibrated to, to look at how much sugar can be taken out of a soft drink and by setting up this tiered levy, all of the soft drink manufacturers basically reformulated their drinks, took out sugar in order to evade the tax. So it wasn't a great tax raising measure, but it was a really good way of stimulating the redesign of drinks. I think that's a good example of using taxes and regulations in a smart way to not drive change in behavior of consumers that much, but more the behavior of those making uh, making drinks and products. And that's what we basically need to do across the whole food environment. 
You're listening to Bridges 2030 Visions, a series about how we accelerate progress towards a more sustainable and inclusive world over the next decade. I guess lots of people will think about innovation as being a separate thing to regulation, almost the sort of antithesis of it. Um, Can you talk about how the two things kind of need to work in tandem? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I think that's... um, it's worth thinking about innovation in some sort of cycle. Now, obviously, innovation is less linear than that. It's often a bit messier and iterative, but there is a process whereby you are understanding a problem, you are seeding new ideas, you're filtering out the good and the bad, and then you're scaling them. Now, regulation, I think, can play a role in two aspects of that. One is actually in incentivizing the investment in new ideas. So long-dated regulation I think, drives the investment in early stage idea generation, and particularly probably the commercialization of basic research. So that's one way in which regulation can help. But the other is actually in in accelerating the diffusion of new ideas. So I'll give you an example. Typically in homes, if you take many home technologies, it takes decades for um, to go from the early adopters through to the late adopters. But with something like condensing boilers, it took only about 12 years because government basically regulated and said from a certain date, every boiler has to be a condensing boiler. And we know that boilers last on average about 10, 15 years, and therefore we could quickly cycle through all of the equipment and and get condensing boilers in. So that's a good example of just accelerating the diffusion of of, um, innovation through regulation. Now, there is obviously a a downside to this, which is, you know, you, you are constraining innovation, you're, you're, you're imposing a single standard. So one of the questions I think you always have to, to think about is, when do you regulate and how do you do it in a way that's technology neutral? You have to think about how regulation um, curbs innovation, but I think it's actually got a really important role to play both in stimulating it and in diffusing it. How hard is it to engage government around this sort of long-term thinking, especially when there's so much short-term noise going on? Well, it's increasingly difficult because um, in a world of multiple crises, uh, time horizons, which are always short and Whitehall have got ludicrously um, scrunched. That said, I think there are there's one area, which is net zero, where you do see government making serious long-term decisions, and it's set up to do so. It's got all the institutions to think long-term. You've got a climate change committee that recommends targets 10, 20 years out, talks about the sectors that need to take more, 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 more carbon out of the economy. And then the, the government does have to then think about the regulations and taxes and policies to drive those changes. And even though there's been lots of noise, um, I think there has been there is a reasonable amount of long-term perspective in government's work on, on net zero. What you don't see that applied to is all the other issues like education or health, obesity that I mentioned, where, again, if we're really going to take, you know, remove that £54 billion cost from the economy from obesity, you've got to think over a decade, how do you reformulate um, products? How do you shift portion sizes? How do you change what retailers are stocking? And that requires, I think, an institution similar to the Climate Change Committee, but for obesity, which is literally thinking, how do we uh, reduce calories from our from our diets? Now, that's where I think we are missing. The good thing about climate change is because it's got a deadline, because we have to get to net zero by 2050, it's encouraged the degree of long-term planning that you don't see in most other policy areas. So if you could reimagine government such that it was perfectly set up to foster and use innovation, what would that look like? How would it differ from what we have today? I think one of the 
the biggest um, problems with our political system is it's relatively easy to introduce new legislation and um, and, and change policy frameworks easily because you've got a win takes all system and um, that happens a lot. Now, as a result, um, you look back over the last 20, 30 years and you get a lot of institutions abolished, laws created, regulations created, and then re- reinventing of the wheel. And that stop-start is, is really fatal. One metaphor for innovation is, is evolution, where you have you know, lots of variations, lots of seeds planted. Then you have a fitness mechanism where the best survive. And then you have a, a amplification mechanism where the, the best really grow. And I think that a good innovation system should pretty much mirror that framework. Um, so firstly, we should always be questioning, are we sowing enough seeds? And that does happen naturally in areas where there is an incentive to do so, where if you, um, you develop new ideas, you can actually get um, your, uh, some, some, some revenue. But in areas where there is a bit of a market failure, um, government actually needs to correct that and, 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 and compensate, and sometimes needs to change the structure of the industry. And the second is creating this fitness mechanism. Now, one example is the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, where there is an institution which says, look, what are we going to fund? Um, what, you know, what drug treatments will, will get um, delivered on the NHS? There's been a wave of what work centres created in the last 10 years, which are trying to do something similar in education and other areas, where you say, what actually works? Should we do more of this? And I think that's what you need in every kind of sector, a way of weeding out good and bad. And then the third side is just the, the, the scaling, where I do think regulation's got a, a role to play, where if you've got good ideas um, and we want to accelerate them, there is a role for pushing that through further. When good ideas emerge, say, on how to teach children, sure, you might have 5 or 10% of teachers keenly looking at what the Education Endowment Foundation have put out, the guidance, but most don't have the time or inclination to do that. So we have to think about the professional development and training we put in place to make sure that we are constantly drip feeding the, le- the latest techniques and habits. And just finally, you're working on these huge, complex, seemingly intractable issues. How optimistic are you that we can get to a good place over the next decade? When we decided to focus on these three big challenges at Nesta, so a healthy life, particularly obesity, a fairer start, and how we narrow the gap between children on free school meals and the average, and also home decarbonisation. We only did that because we thought each of them was genuinely tractable. Sure, they're incredibly hard, um, but there is enough hope and optimism, I think, in each of them to think change is possible. I'm very optimistic in areas where there is political consensus, like the, the net zero side. Where it is more challenging is in things like obesity, um, where it has been politically contested, there's concerns about a, a nanny state. But I think these are definitely definitely soluble issues. Um, and with the right policy environment, I think we can make quite a lot of progress in the next decade. You've been listening to Bridges 2030 Visions with me, James Taylor. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, why not like, subscribe, share, download extra episodes or even leave us a nice five-star review somewhere. Thanks for joining us.